and welcome to episode 21 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with article here about education. This is in the Daily Mail. Head teacher who banned compulsory homework for her pupils is suspended as school U-turns and brings it back. A school that controversially banned homework two years ago was backtracked and brought it back following backlash from parents. Philip Morant School and College in Colchester, Essex, scrapped out-of-hours learning in 2016 when the head teacher announced that homework would no longer be part of the curriculum. Two years later, the standing heads have reintroduced homework amidst widespread internal issues, including the suspension of school leaders and staff bullying. Suspended head teacher Catherine Huckley at the time said that the no-homework policy would help teachers who had too much marking and that the job of a teacher is impossible. Co-leader Nandeep Sharma was also suspended. The suspensions came after parents contacted their local MP raising concerns over Philip Morant's controversial no-homework policy, bullying and other issues. 200 people challenged the school. One parent, Tony Cheel, 70, slammed the decision to ban homework and has welcomed the return. He said the reintroduction of homework can only be a good thing and this is a great victory for common sense. I recall being very shocked when my son came home and said that he no longer had to do homework. I thought he was joking. By scrapping homework, the parents became excluded from the school and any good parent wanted to be involved with the school and their children, especially because 65% of a child's waking hours is spent with their parents and only 35% at school. If you are telling a 14-year-old boy that he does not have to do any homework, then he really isn't going to do any homework. This experiment should never have been implemented throughout the entire school either because the children were getting confused with not doing homework and not studying for their GCSEs. Bill Hayton, 49, who has two children at the school, said the new school leadership is finally making some positive changes and are taking all our comments on board. I think they realised that they had a problem and that the new homework policy was not working. If you are learning a language or something along those lines, you cannot be just going to one or two lessons a week and then nothing more. I am concerned about the upcoming exam results because although some children would have been doing their own work at home, many would think that not doing homework is the same as not doing any revision. The article goes on. Colin Green and Michelle Myers have been standing in at the school since headteacher Catherine Huckley was suspended 12 weeks ago. The school also had a recent Ofsted inspection and Tony believes that the result will be heavily impacted by the no homework policy. He says, intrinsically, there is nothing wrong with the school and the staff. It is all the leadership and the inspectors will definitely have found issue with the fact that the pupils have not had any homework. But with the new leadership in place, the issues that existed before can hopefully be rectified. I imagine they will assess the situation very carefully and I trust them to find a way forward that is suitable for all. The article goes on. The new leadership advised the parents at the school that they were backtracking on the no homework policy in a letter after giving in to the pressure from the school's parents. The letter read, we are now in the process of establishing a robust and thorough approach to independent study at home, which will be based on very significant compulsory element at all key stages as well as opportunities for students to develop their independent learning skills as they progress through the school. In the meantime, students have been made aware that if teachers indicate to them that tasks need to be completed outside of lessons to support their learning, the expectation from the school is that they complete them. There will also be opportunities and encouragement for students to enrich their studies through a variety of activities both in school and in the wider community. At the time it was hoped the no homework policy would free up teachers' time to plan lessons rather than being bogged down in marking homework. The initiative encouraged pupils to complete voluntary non-compulsory tasks outside of class and the school said it would ensure all compulsory work is covered in the classroom. The article goes on. The school has been contacted for comment but did not answer any questions put to them. What we've got here is one of those rare teachers who actually thinks for themselves 
There are some, and she's decided that homework is unnecessary and scrapped it. Of course, that was never going to last, and it's been reintroduced into the school. I talk about education in episode 15. When you look at the information kids are given at school, left and right, and they have very different perspectives. The left is about analysis, logic, structure, facts, hierarchy, organisation, seeing everything as a part and disconnected, etc. And the right is creativity, imagination, intuition, seeing and making connections, seeing the big picture instead of the dots that have to be joined to see the picture, etc. The right is all the traits that allow us to see the bigger picture and see the context and connections. And if you're going to really understand the world and society and why they are as they are, then you need to be much more in the right brain than the education system wants people to be. And there was research conducted by Kyung Hee Kim, professor of education at the College of William and Mary. And they found that as children have gone through school, they've become less emotionally expressive, less energetic, less talkative and verbally expressive, less humorous, right brain, less imaginative, right brain, less unconventional, right brain, less lively and passionate, less perceptive, right brain, less apt to connect seemingly irrelevant things, connections, right brain, and less likely to see things from a different angle, right brain. In other words, the education system is there to get people into left brain perception from the earliest possible age. So they only perceive from left brain perspective, which is exactly where the system and the elite need them to be if their agenda is to be successful. If you accept the programming enough, you get rewarded with lots of exam passes, praise and prestige. And you can then go to a good college and a good university, good at programming, and then go on and become a doctor, a teacher, a journalist, a lawyer, a scientist, and all these areas of the system which means society is run on one level by left brain dominated people who can't get out of the left brain to see things from a different perspective and who only look to other left brain dominated people for information about how things are and why because their perspective is only they know because they're experts, experts of the program. When these people go into these professions, they take with them the core programming from which they perceive everything. Perception is everything. For example, if a journalist is doing a story about health they won't go to an alternative practitioner who may have had great success in healing the body with a long track record and may have had great success treating a problem that regular doctors would say is impossible to treat. The journalist will go to a doctor who will give them the download perception official version of that problem and how it can be treated and in many cases how there's no cure. If they're doing a story about reality they won't go to an independent researcher who's been studying reality beyond the official line for decades and make great discoveries they'll go to a scientist who'll give them the download perception official version of reality in other words society is run by the official line constantly confirming the official line and never challenging it or going beyond it or even knowing that beyond it exists education is also we're told about preparing children and young people in general for the workplace this is why schools are focused on teaching you what you need to know to pass exams rather than teaching you other information which would actually be a lot more beneficial it's just what you need to pass the exam so then you can get good qualification to get a good job everything's focused on preparing young people for the workplace in other words preparing young people to be a slave and a cog in a machine for the rest of their lives within a few short years you're sitting at a desk with an authority figure in the form of the teacher telling you what's true what's not true what's credible, what's not credible, where you can go, when you can go, when you can eat, 
when you can go to the toilet, when you have to be there, when you can leave, and the punishments for not complying and following orders. And then you go to work and you have the same thing in the form of a boss. So right from the earliest stage you're being prepared for this dynamic where someone else is telling you how to live your life. Scores of prisons preparing us for the bigger prison that we call human society. I've featured stories on pay-per-view before of schools taking over from parents in terms of decision-making, which is an expression of the state taking over from parents in terms of decision-making, which is, as I've said before, the agenda in the end. Homework is about taking what's left of the free time of kids and filling it with even more left-brain information. Parents were angry at the decision to scrap homework because they're coming from the download of perception programming that kids get from school, and those kids then take it with them through life and rarely question it. How many times do kids actually question what a teacher says? Very rarely. It does happen now and then, but it's incredibly rare. And that then gets them into the mindset of never questioning what authority tells them and what official sources tell them. So when they watch the news on the television, they don't question it because an official person, a newsreader, is saying it, so it must be true. It's all preparation, that's what school is. There's a download of perception, a download of normal, a download of how things are, literally a download because the body is a computer, a biological computer, and the brain's a computer, a processor of information. And people take this download through their lives, and school is a massive part of this. School not only provides a download of the perception of the world, and self, and reality, and possibility through science, history, and in other ways, it also provides a download of normal, and how things are, and what's right and wrong, etc., for everything and everyone. I saw a meme on the internet, which I'll include in the description when I upload this episode, and the meme was about what kids learn from school, and it said, what school teaches children? One, truth comes from authority. I mentioned that just now. Two, intelligence is the ability to remember and repeat. Just take in a load of information. You don't know if it's true, you've just been told it is. You've not researched it, you just memorised it, and then repeat it on an exam paper. Three, accurate memory and repetition are rewarded. Four, non-compliance is punished. Now that doesn't just mean messing about in class. It also means questioning what you're told. You may not be punished in class for that, but if you give a different answer, even if you provide information as to why you think the answer is different to a question, on an exam paper, you don't get the marks. And number five, conform intellectually and socially. That's what school teaches children. People take this download with them through their lives and it becomes a perception of normal and how things are when it's just a download, a computer program of perception. And as I said just now, some of these people then go on to become teachers themselves or scientists, doctors, academics, historians, journalists, etc. And they're all coming from the perception of the computer program download. And they judge possibility and everything from that perception and perspective. So to bring this back around to the parents being angry at the original decision to scrap homework, they're coming from this download of normal. So to them, scrapping homework is a bad idea because you need to do well at school. And the more you learn at school, the cleverer you are. And they want to be proud of their kids who are so clever and know everything they need to know to go through life. And also they'll get a good job with lots of good results, which are gained from nothing more than repeating what you've been told to believe and memorise onto an exam paper in many cases. Because good results and getting a job is the whole focus of the education system. It's not interested in opening minds and teaching kids what they really need to know. 
genuinely relevant information to life and opening up new ways of seeing the world in new levels of understanding all of which I support kids learning and it's not there to teach kids what makes them feel happy and fulfilled and what they're actually interested in in many cases it's there to teach kids what they need to know to pass exams that's it and this download of normal I mean what is normal? normal is just what we normally experience if you live in the outback in Australia your normal is hardly ever seeing a car go past and if you live in the city in Britain or America for example your normal is regularly seeing cars go past outside your house so it's just what you normally experience and if you're brought up believing that two and two equals five because that's all you've been told parents tell you that from the earliest age not because they're being manipulative but because they believe it because they've been through the same system you're about to go through and then you go to school and all your teachers are telling you that two and two equals five then you go to the bigger school and maybe college and university and all through that you're being told that two and two equals five by now all your peers all your mates are confirming that two and two equals five and if you say it equals four they laugh at you then you go home and you turn on the television and newsreaders and people on television are telling you that two and two equals five. You read a book, a textbook in school or college and it tells you that two and two equals five. All the official sources of society are telling you two and two equals five. You'll go through the whole of your life believing two and two equals five but it still equals four. But if you accept the program and the download of normal then you'll never question it or even if you do question it you won't speak about it because you don't want people to think that you think anything different to what they think in terms of what education is there's a clip of a 90s TV show called Boy Meets World which I'll include a link to when I upload this episode where a teacher character called Mr Feeney the second greatest teacher character ever in my opinion I say the second because the main character years later in a spin-off show becomes a teacher character himself and becomes, I think, the greatest teacher character ever. Mr. Feeney actually lives next door to the main character and he often gives advice to the main character and his brother, usually in his front garden because it's set in suburban America in the 90s. And he gives advice, life advice, life lessons. How often does that happen in school? Never happens. Hardly ever, if at all. Mr. Feeney is talking about education and it's brilliant what he says. The main character, called Corey, stayed up all night to watch a baseball game with his dad and the next day he was tired in school and he fails a test. And Corey asks if he can have another chance at the test and, and Mr. Feeney refuses. That's the background to the clip but it's brilliant what Mr. Feeney says. The education system, as it is, is a perception programming machine and short of learning to read, write and do basic essential math, there's very little we need it for, especially now as we live in the age of information. There's never been a greater access to information in known human history. And one thing school could do is teach kids how to find information and how to research. Teaching kids research skills would be a far more beneficial exercise than just giving them work to do and giving them information most of which is either untrue or irrelevant to human life in the grand scheme of things. Teach kids, teach kids how to find information and then, in this age of information, 
they can find information themselves and they can decide what they make of the information and come to their own conclusions on the world, society, history, reality, possibility, etc. Rather than having it downloaded by school. Teach kids how to think, not what to think. But of course this would be very dangerous to the fabric of human society. It would, because if you teach kids how to think, how to research and to question everything, then there's a very good chance you'll end up with a generation, and therefore subsequent generations, who think for themselves and can see through official narratives and explanations. And we can't have that now, can we? Or even knowing that beyond it exists. An article here about video games and technology. This is The Telegraph. Addictive video games may change children's brains in the same way as drugs and alcohol study reveals. Fortnite and other addictive video games can have a similar effect on children's brains as drug abuse or alcoholism. MRI scans reveal. They show the reward system in the brains of young heavy users of social media and video games. Display the same changes in function and structure as those of alcoholics or drug addicts. A series of studies by California State University found the impulsive part of the brain, known as the amygdala striatal system, was not only more sensitive but also smaller in excessive users so that it processed the stimuli of social media or games faster. The findings come as Britain's children are gripped by the Fortnite video game with one nine-year-old reportedly admitted to rehab after becoming so addicted she wet herself rather than leave the screen in primary schools urging parents to ban their children from playing them. On Monday, the Daily Telegraph launched a duty of care campaign calling on ministers to make social media and online gaming companies subject to a statutory duty to protect children from harms such as addiction, bullying and grooming when using their services. Ministers are considering new measures to rein in the worst excesses of online tech companies amid fears a generation of young people is being harmed by unregulated use of social media and online gaming platforms. One leading internet addiction expert who has treated children playing the games said Fortnite's addictive quality was such that it made Beatlemania look like a passing win. Don't think that's true myself, but still. And had captivated the young in the same way as the nation was swept up by the Princess Diana effect. According to the studies led by Professor Ophir Chirao of California State University, the impact on the young's brains is marked. He says, Say someone sees a video game or cell phone, this reward system in the brain lights up is a very strong activation compared to other people. It is associated with structural change in that this brain area is smaller in people who are excessive users. The smaller system can process associations much faster, but like a car you need to put more gas into it to generate more power. The article goes on. There was, however, an upside in that the studies showed the part of the brain responsible for self-control over their impulses was not affected in the same way for excessive social media users as other addictions, such as drink or drugs. It means most people can control their social media behaviour, but they just don't have the motivation to do so, said Professor Turrell. This was less evident for heavy video gamers where self-control appeared to be impeded. More worrying, however, was the risk that excessive usage could be changing children's brain reward systems in the long term, making them more susceptible to other addictions later in life. The question is, if you sensitise their reward system at a young age with video games and social media, does it increase their risk to become addicted to drugs or drink later in life, said Professor Turrell. His initial research suggests there is an association between heavy video game users aged 13 to 15 and an increased likelihood of misusing at least one of 15 substances from cocaine 
2 amphetamines. A third study by his research team found the internet addiction also disrupted the connections between the left and right sides of young people's brains. When the tracks that connect these parts of the brain are not efficient, people are more prone to develop addiction, said Professor Durell. There is a much bigger risk factor for addicted children because their brains are flexible. Some parts of the brain develop until they are 17, others are not fully developed until they are 25, said Professor Turrell. He goes on to say, the development of the reward or impulse system is much faster compared to the development of the self-control system. It means that if you take someone who is 13 years old, they will have a mature reward system, but self-control system is not as well developed. So they are much more predisposed for impulsive and risky behaviours. With children there is room for regulation. They need our protection. Their brains are not as efficient as ours. The article goes on. The addictive quality of Fortnite, which has been downloaded 40 million times since last July, has been picked up by Dr Richard Graham, who set up the first UK internet addiction clinic at the private Nightingale Hospital in London. He said all the young patients he was treating did play the game alongside other internet activities, with one playing it through the night. He said in six months it has made Beatlemania look like a passing whim. You are dealing with something akin to the massive Diana effect that swept up everyone. The multiplayer format, where in the Battle Royale version up to 100 players fight each other until one is left standing, engendered a crowd mentality. You have a mass crowd effect where you have engagement that sweeps you along, said Dr. Graham. The fear of missing out is also part of what drives it. It's something you can't almost not be a part of. Concerned parents have taken to forums such as Mumsnet to voice their fears. One mother wrote of a primary school-aged son. Yesterday, he saw a poster with a man and child in a swimming pool and commented that it would be a perfect shot to blow their heads off. Another added that his son, age nine, had become addicted and she had imposed a ban on the game after his behaviour deteriorated massively. She wrote, It was awful to see how angry he was becoming. I seriously wish I'd never let him on it. The article goes on. The nine-year-old girl, now in rehab, would secretly play the survival shooter game during the night and didn't even get up to use the toilet because she couldn't prize herself away from the screen. The girl, who was now in intensive therapy to combat her addiction, would play for up to 10 hours a day, worn out from all night sessions she dozed off at school. She even lashed out at her father when he tried to confiscate her Xbox gaming console. The girl's mother said, We had no idea when we let her play the game of the addictive nature or the impact it could have on her mental health. The article goes on. The World Health Organization declared in January that internet gaming addiction will be classified as a mental disorder. Last weekend, the Daily Telegraph revealed a 15-year-old boy was set to be diagnosed with a condition in the first case of its kind in Britain. He has spent eight weeks in hospital due to his addiction and has not been to school for a year after losing confidence to go outside. Well, I've said on pay-per-view before now that technology is changing the brain, especially of young people. This is due to brain plasticity or neuroplasticity, which I've mentioned before, where the brain changes due to experiential influences, thought and emotion. Scientists used to believe that the way the brain was when you were born was how it stayed for life, but they know the opposite is the case now. And video games and technology are changing the brain. I've mentioned before a researcher called Susan Greenfield. She wrote a book called Mind Change, where she talks about this. And here's an article she wrote in the Daily Mail. Modern technology is changing the way our brains work, says a neuroscientist. Human identity, the idea that defines each and every one of us, can be facing an unprecedented crisis. It is a crisis that would threaten long-held notions of who we are, what we do and how we behave. It goes right to the heart or the head of us all. This crisis could reshape how we interact with each other, alter what makes us happy and modify our capacity for reaching our full potential as individuals. And it's caused by one simple fact, the human brain, that most sensitive of organs is under threat from the modern world.
unless we wake up to the damage that the gadget field pharmaceutically enhanced. Well, not so enhanced, I would say. I would say, for reasons I explained in episode 17, unless we wake up to the damage that the gadget field pharmaceutically enhanced 21st century is doing to our brains, we could be sleepwalking towards a future in which neurochip technology blurs the line between living and non-living machines and between our bodies and the outside world. Absolutely, I've talked about that many times on pay-per-view, not least episode 11. The article goes on. It would be a world where such devices could enhance our muscle power or our senses beyond the norm and where we all take a daily cocktail of drugs to control our moods and performance. This technological agenda is not about enhancement. It's not about making us superhuman. It's about making us subhuman. The article goes on. Already, an electronic chip is being developed that could allow a paralyzed patient to move a robotic limb just by thinking about it. As for drug manipulating moves, they're already with us, although so far only to a medically prescribed extent. Increasing numbers of people already take Prozac for depression, Paxil as an antidote for shyness and give Ritalin to children to improve their concentration. But what if there were still more pills to enhance or correct, in quote marks, a range of other specific mental functions? What would such aspirations to be perfect, in quote marks, or better, in quote marks, due to our notions of identity and what would it do to those who could not get their hands on the pills? Would some finally have become more equal than others? As George Orwell always feared. Of course there are benefits from technical progress, but there are great dangers as well, and I believe that we are seeing some of those today. I'm a neuroscientist and my day-to-day -day research at Oxford University strives for an ever greater understanding and therefore maybe one day a cure for Alzheimer's disease. But one vital fact I've learned is that the brain is not the unchanging organ that we might imagine. It not only goes on developing, changing and in some tragic cases eventually deteriorating with age, it is also substantially shaped by what we do. But one vital fact I've learned is that the brain is not the unchanging organ that we might imagine. It not only goes on developing, changing and in some tragic cases eventually deteriorating with age, it is also substantially shaped by what we do to it and by the experience of daily life. When I say shaped, I'm not talking figuratively or metaphorically, I'm talking literally. At a microcellular level, the infinitely complex network of nerve cells that make up the constituent parts of the brain actually change in response to certain experiences and stimuli. The brain, in other words, is malleable, not just in early childhood, but right up to early adulthood and in certain instances beyond. The surrounding environment has a huge impact both on the way our brains develop and how that brain is transformed into a unique human mind. Of course, there's nothing new about that. Human brains have been changing, adapting, and developing in response to outside stimuli for centuries. What prompted me to write my book, Mind Change, is that the pace of change in the outside environment and in development of new technologies has increased dramatically. This will affect our brains over the next 100 years in ways we might never have imagined. Our brains are under the influence of an ever-expanding world of new technology, multi-channel television, video games, MP3 players, the internet, wireless networks, Bluetooth links, the list goes on and on. But our modern brains are also having to adapt to other 21st century intrusions, some of which, such as prescribed drugs like Ritalin and Prozac, are supposed to be a benefit, and some of which, such as widely available illegal drugs like cannabis and heroin, are not. Again, see episode 17 for what I've said about medicine. Electronic devices and pharmaceutical drugs all have an impact on the microcellular structure and complex biochemistry of our brains, and that in turn affects our personality, our behaviour and our characteristics. 
In short, the modern world could well be altering our human identity. With our brains now under such widespread attack from the modern world, there's a danger that that cherished sense of self can be diminished or even lost. Anyone who doubts the malleability of the adult brain should consider a startling piece of research conducted at Harvard Medical School. There, a group of adult volunteers, none of whom could previously play the piano, were split into three groups. The first group were taken into a room with a piano and given intensive piano practice for five days. The second group were taken into an identical room with an identical piano but had nothing to do with the instrument at all. And the third group were taken into an identical room with an identical piano and were then told that for the next five days they had to just imagine they were practicing piano exercises. The resultant brain scans were extraordinary. Not surprisingly, the brains of those who simply sat in the same room as the piano hadn't changed at all. Equally unsurprising was the fact that those who had performed the piano exercises saw marked structural changes in the area of the brain associated with finger movement. But what was truly astonishing was that the group who had merely imagined doing the piano exercises saw changes in brain structure that were almost as pronounced as those that had actually had lessons. The power of imagination is not a metaphor, it seems. It's real. It has a physical basis in your brain. Alas, no neuroscientist can explain how the sort of changes at the Harvard experimenters reported at the microcellular level translate into changes in character, personality or behaviour. But we don't need to know that to realise that changes in brain structure and our higher thoughts and feelings are incontrovertibly linked. What worries me is that if something as innocuous as imagining a piano lesson can bring about a visible physical change in brain structure and therefore some presumably minor change in the way the aspiring player performs, what changes might long stints playing violent computer games bring about. That eternal teenage protest of its only a game mum certainly begins to ring alarmingly hollow. Already it's pretty clear that the screen-based two-dimensional world that so many teenagers and a growing number of adults choose to inhabit is producing changes in behaviour. Attention spans are shorter, personal communicating skills are reduced and there's a marked reduction in the ability to think abstractly. This games-driven generation interpret the world through screen-shaped eyes. It's almost as if something hasn't really happened until it's been posted on Facebook, Bebo or YouTube. Add to that the huge amount of personal information now stored on the internet. Births, marriages, telephone numbers, credit ratings, holiday pictures and it's sometimes difficult to know where the boundaries of our individuality actually lie. Only one thing is certain, these boundaries are weakening. And they could weaken further still if and when neuro, in other words brain, chip technology becomes more widely available. Well, it's when. These tiny devices will take advantage of the discovery that nerve cells and silicon chips can happily coexist, allowing an interface between the electronic world and the human body. One of my colleagues recently suggested that someone could be fitted with a cochlear implant, devices that convert sound waves into electronic impulses and enable the deaf to hear, and a skull-mounted microchip that converts brainwaves into words, a prototype is under research. Then, if both devices were connected to a wireless network, you really would have arrived at the point which science fiction writers have been getting excited about for years. Mind reading. He was joking, but for how long the gag remains funny is far from clear. Today's technology is already producing a marked shift in the way we think and behave, particularly among the young. I mustn't, however, be too censorious, because what I'm talking about is pleasure. For some, pleasure means wine, women and song. For others, more recently, sex, drugs and rock and roll, and for millions today, endless hours at the computer console. But whatever your particular variety of pleasure and energetic sport needs to be added to the list, it's long been accepted that pure pleasure, that is to say, activity drawing which you truly let yourself go, was part of the diverse portfolio of normal human life. Until now, that is. Now, coinciding with the moment when technology and pharmaceutical companies are finding ever more ways to have direct influence on the human brain, 
Pleasure is becoming the sole be-all and end-all of many lives, especially among the young. We could be raising a hedonistic generation. Hedonistic means engaged in the pursuit of pleasure, especially self-indulgent. A hedonistic generation who live only in the thrill of the computer-generated moment and are in distinct danger of detaching themselves from what the rest of us would consider the real world. This is the trend that worries me profoundly, for as any alcoholic or drug addict will tell you, nobody can be trapped in the moment of pleasure forever. Sooner or later you have to come down. I'm certainly not saying all video games are addictive, as yet there is not enough research to back that up, and I genuinely welcome the new generation of brain training computer games aimed at keeping the little grey cells active for longer. That's a good point because there are games where you can actually learn and train your brain and learn new skills. So this doesn't necessarily apply to every game, but it's kind of a general overall overview. The article goes on. As my Alzheimer's research has shown me, when it comes to higher brain function, it's clear that there is some truth in the adage, use it or lose it. However, playing certain games can mimic addiction, and the heaviest users of these games might soon begin to do a pretty good impersonation of an addict. Throw in circumstantial evidence that links a sharp rise in diagnoses of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I've talked before about ADHD and how, at least on one level, it's caused by additives in food and drink, like aspartame, and the symptoms of those additives, how they mirror the symptoms of ADHD because one's causing the other. Anyway, the article goes on. Throw in circumstantial evidence that links a sharp rise in diagnoses of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and the associated threefold increase in Ritalin prescriptions over the past 10 years. Ritalin is often prescribed for what is called ADHD. The associated threefold increase in Ritalin prescriptions over the past 10 years with the booming computer games and you have an immensely worrying scenario. But we mustn't be too pessimistic about the future. It may sound frighteningly Orwellian, but there may be some potential advantages to be gained from our growing understanding of the human brain's tremendous plasticity. What if we could create an environment that would allow the brain to develop in a way that was seen to be of universal benefit? I'm not convinced that scientists would ever find a way of manipulating the brain to make us all much cleverer. It would probably be cheaper and far more effective to manipulate the education system. And nor do I believe that we can somehow be made much happier, not at least without somehow anaesthetizing ourselves against the sadness and misery that is part and parcel of the human condition. When someone I love dies, I still want to be able to cry. But I do paradoxically see potential in one particular direction. I think it possible that we might one day be able to harness outside stimuli in such a way that creativity, surely the ultimate expression of individuality, is actually boosted rather than diminished. I am optimistic and excited by what future research will reveal into the workings of the human brain and the extraordinary process by which it is translated into a uniquely individual mind. Or a hive mind, as I talk about in episode 11, with the technology agenda, the article goes on. But I'm also concerned that we seem to be so oblivious to the dangers that are already upon us. Well, that debate must start now. Identity, the very essence of what it is to be human, is open to change, both good and bad. Our children, and certainly our grandchildren, will not thank us if we put off discussion much longer. Well, as I've said before, the agenda is to completely change the human identity. Literally, in the end, with the technological agenda. article here about migration. This is in Daily Mail. Hungary's far-right Prime Minister Viktor Orban claims replacement of populations is underway with mass migration because financiers want to profit from the ruination of Europe. Hungary's far-right Prime Minister Viktor Orban claimed the population of Europe is being replaced and that financial speculators like US billionaire George Soros 
are hoping to profit from the rumination of the continent. In a discussion on the growing number of migrants flooding into Balkan countries on public Kossuth Radio on Friday, Orban warned that Europe was seeing a new wave of migration. He claimed it was necessary to fight Soros and his army to prevent a multicultural Europe because we do not want to mix with others. In a response to press reports that Soros' organisations are in every Balkan country, Orban declared it's worth fighting against a force that is stronger than us, against a force like George Soros and his army. We played a role in this network being exposed as we brought it out into the open and now they have to openly state their goals. They want immigration. The replacement of populations and peoples is underway in Europe partly because speculators like George Soros can make large financial profits. They are set on the rumination of Europe because they're hoping for large profits, says Orban. As well as profits, Orban also insisted there was an ideological motivation for the creation of a multicultural Europe. He said, on the other hand, there was also an ideological motivation. They believe in a multicultural Europe. They don't like Christian Europe. They don't like traditions of Christian Europe, and they definitely don't like Christians. They believe that if they mix us with some other kind of people, we'll be more beautiful, we'll look better, and Europe will be a better place in which to live. We, however, do not want to mix with others. He added that the current rising tide of mass migration poses a challenge for Hungary's neighbours. We are indeed seeing signs of a new migration wave, of a rising tide following a low tide. It's rising now and this poses a challenge, he said. We've managed to ensure that now every migrant knows that they shouldn't follow the path marked by the signpost pointing to Hungary. This is good, but it won't protect our neighbours. As we also need stable neighbours, we must provide them with help, he said. It comes after Orbán's government proposed legislation to be voted on later this month, which would criminalise the act of helping asylum seekers. Leading Hungarian non-governmental organisations denounced the so-called Stop Soros package of bills that could see activists and lawyers jailed. Measures would allow courts to pass criminal sentences, including jail terms of up to one year on individuals for aiding asylum seekers. Well, I don't see anything wrong myself with aiding asylum seekers. People who genuinely are fleeing their country, not least because of the actions of the West and its foreign policy. But the point that needs to be made is that only some of the people who come into a country as migrants are genuine. Others are opportunists and some of them are single men. That's the point that progressives don't want to face. And then they call people racist or bigot for pointing it out. Well, so what? The article goes on. Representatives from prominent local NGOs called the proposals an attack against human rights defenders. Well, I talk in episode 12 about how NGOs, non-governmental organisations, which present themselves as charities, are fueling immigration on one level. Not necessarily every NGO, but some of them. Parliament should drop the idea of criminalising our work, which is in solidarity with asylum seekers and refugees. Julia Ivan, head of Amnesty International in Hungary, told a press conference outside Parliament. We do what we have to do. We are not criminals, she said. The article goes on. The government says the laws are aimed at persons helping undeserving migrants to acquire refugee status, for example, if those persons were not in immediate danger before entering Hungary or who entered the country illegally. Named after the liberal, not liberal at all, Hungarian-American billionaire George Soros, the measures are the government's latest broadside against the 87-year-old who has long been accused by the fiercely anti-immigration Orbán of facilitating migration into Europe. The run-up to a parliamentary election in April which Orbán's ruling Fidesz party won by a landslide, was dominated by anti-migrant and anti-Soros messaging on pro-government media 
After the vote, Orban vowed to clamp down on NGOs whose staff he called Tsarist mercenaries. According to Marta Pardavi, co-chair of the Hungarian Helsinki Committee, a group providing free legal aid to asylum seekers, Stop Tsarist is meant to stigmatise, intimidate and sanction human rights defenders' work. She told a press conference, The measures are unacceptable and should have no place in a democratic country that is run by the rule of law. The article goes on. The UNHCR Refugee Agency has also called on the government to withdraw the plans. They would significantly restrict the ability of NGOs and individuals to support asylum seekers and refugees, it said in a statement. The article goes on. EU's rights watchdog, the Venice Commission, has also begun a probe into the law's compliance with EU values and is due to give its opinion later in June. The NGOs have pledged to use all legal means to challenge the legislation, depending on the final version approved by Parliament, including bringing cases before the Hungarian Constitutional Court and the EU courts. This is interesting because in Hungary, they've actually got posters in public places like bus stops talking about how George Soros should be stopped from interfering in global affairs. The people of Hungary are obviously far more aware of Soros and his meddling than people in Britain and America are, for example. I've talked about George Soros in episode 3 and migration in episode 12, and it's an elite agenda. Orban is absolutely right. The idea is to fuse cultures, and by fuse I don't mean integration. I mean diluting sovereignty and culture, which has to happen before people are going to be open to the idea of a world governing body, which is the agenda. The unions, like the European Union, are designed to be the means through which the world government dictates to the constituent nations of the unions and nations are designed to be broken up into mega-regions and mega-cities under the United Nations Agenda 21. These are the smart cities run by the smart grid or the cloud in transhumanist talk. I talk about transhumanism in episode 11 as well as other episodes and 5G is planned to be the wireless delivery system of the smart grid. And I talk about 5G in last week's episode and episode 8. So these are the connections you don't get through the mainstream media. And even when people are debating migration, they keep it on the level of migrants and nationhood and taking over countries, which is important to address in terms of its effect on society and people, the indigenous culture, the indigenous people. But transhumanism of 5G are immensely important to address. And migration plays into the transhumanism agenda, which is planned to fundamentally involve 5G. about political correctness. This is in the Daily Mail. Cooperative bank bans feminist group from using its services after they barred transgender people from becoming members. The Cooperative Bank has banned a feminist group from using its services because of its stance on transgender issues. The bank claims the unnamed group has actively declined the rights of members of the transgender community. But the ban has sparked outrage from feminist campaigners. Last night, activist Venice Allen told the Mail on Sunday, feminist groups are constantly being told that they need to admit men who define themselves as a woman, but I think we are entitled to stick to the dictionary definition of what a man is and what a woman is. It is highly inappropriate for the co-op bank to treat a group in this way for sticking to the correct definition of a woman. What they're talking about there is biological man and woman. You can have a man identified as a woman, but if biologically he's a man, then he's a man. The boycott is revealed in the Co-op's Values and Ethics Report 2017 in which it proclaims We decline banking services to and then lists organisations it deems to be unacceptable and which it is turned down. Extraordinarily, the feminist group is top of the list ahead of organisations listed under oppressive regimes and the fur trade. 
the co-op has refused to reveal further details, but there has been an increasingly heated conflict nationally over transgender issues. Feminists want to protect the rights of biological women. In contrast, transgender hardliners say that anyone who chooses to identify as a female should be allowed into women's single-sex spaces. Well, already we're seeing the possibility for that to be exploited when you've got men going into girls, women's changing rooms, saying they identify as a woman, so they should be allowed in there. This could happen, of course, in single-sex toilets as well. This is where it ends this idea of identify as a woman, therefore I should be allowed to be treated as a woman. The article goes on. Last September, the factions came to blows at a rally at Speaker's Corner in London's Hyde Park, during which a 60-year-old woman was punched in the face. Last night, a spokesman for the co-op bank said we will not provide banking services to any business organisation or government that advocates discrimination and incitement to hatred. We gave the organisation an opportunity to provide clarification on their position related to diversity and equality and how they comply with the UK Equality Act. The organisation failed to respond to this request and their application was declined. Well, on one level, this is classic virtue signalling. This is very common nowadays in the politically correct world we unfortunately live in, where people have to let other people know they're taking the correct, in quote marks, stance on an issue to let people know they think and do the, in quote marks, right thing, according to political correctness and the accepted values of society. With social media nowadays as well, especially Twitter, people have to be seen to be saying the quote right thing and thinking and feeling the quote right thing. Otherwise, they get a Twitter storm and they might even become a trending topic, especially if they're well known, and everyone finds out what they said. And at that point, many people apologise and try to regain their reputation rather than just tweeting something like, for all those offended by my recent comment or comments, here's my well thought out response with a picture of a middle finger, which is what the reply should be. I saw a comment on Twitter the other day. Alan Sugar made a joke, which wasn't taken as a joke by certain people because political correctness has no sense of humor. And he said, I misjudged me earlier tweet. It was in no way intended to cause offense and clearly my attempt at humor has backfired. I have deleted the tweet and I'm very sorry. I saw that and I replied, if it wasn't intended to cause offense, then why are you apologizing? If someone's offended by something not intended to cause offence, that's their problem, not anyone else's. It's their choice to be offended. Tell them where to go, or just ignore them. Or, say it again. That quote sums up the attitude we need to deal with this attempt to destroy freedom of speech, because that's where all this ends. All this political correctness, it ends in the end of freedom of speech, without which there can be no other freedom. On another level, this is the PC hierarchy and the PC pyramid, both of which I talk about in episodes 13 and 15. Transgender is given preference because of this PC hierarchy. Not just transgender, but the whole LGBTQ plus S, F, C, B, N. I mean, how many other letters do they want to use? There's only 26 in the alphabet. There'll be doubling letters soon. I saw a comment once which said, are we talking about gender or a game of Scrabble? That sums it up. But transgender is given preference because of this PC hierarchy. If transgenders were denying feminists because of feminist views on men and women, there would be far less of a problem. But because feminists are being banned because of their views on transgender and men and women, biological men and women, then there is a problem. I've talked about transgender several times before, including episodes 5, 8 and 17. And in terms of political correctness, here's another article I came across this week. This is Carol Midgley writing in The Times. Are you easily offended? If so, this column was written especially for you. 
Transport for London, TFL, has apologised unreservedly and not before time after staff cruelly humiliated passengers by chasing them along the platform with sticks, shouting, put your big sweaty bum cracks away, cancelling is available to those affected. Oh, it seems I've got that wrong. What actually happened was that a member of staff wrote on a whiteboard for its inspirational quote of the day these words, During this heatwave, please dress for the body you have, not the body you want. To which some people promptly burst into Twitter tears, accusing TfL of body shaming. This is one of these political correctness phrases, body shaming, along with mansplaining and others. The article goes on. In a normal, well-adjusted world, TfL would have told those people to shut up and get a life, then return to the business of keeping London moving. But we do not live in such a world. So a familiar snivelly script was followed. It released a statement saying we apologise unreservedly to customers who were offended by the insensitive message on the whiteboard at Black Horse Road Station, then promised an investigation. Into what exactly? Having a sense of humour? Stating the blindingly obvious truth? I'm sure you don't want to sit on a public seat marinating butter juice because someone's spilling out of skimpy shorts any more than I do. It's no fun either staring at someone's fungally infected toenails because they're wearing sandals for the first time since August 2017. But I'm supposed to turn away in wretched toe shaming. Fungi have feelings too. How do you body shame 8 million people simultaneously, by the way? This message never promoted an ideal body size nor mentioned weight. There was no picture. It was a light-hearted plea not to let perspiring bare flesh drench the upholstery. It was a call for consideration and self-awareness via a regular message board designed to make people laugh and remember from one fleet to moment in rush hour that they're not ants but human beings. Apologies if that sounds antist or if any ants really are offended. Ants are, of course, part of a hard-working community and for the record I have never seen a fat ant. Not that there would be anything wrong with that. No, no, no thorax shaming here. But what about the people who are offended by a builder's bum star cracking their face on the tube? What about them, eh? These perpetual offence takers now rule the world, forcing people to make apologies for nothing, fainting if a friendly shopkeeper calls them love, and claiming that their feelings are hurt by absolutely everything. Last year, some students in Dallas actually wanted an annual display of flags commemorating the victims of 9-11 to be moved because it was triggering. I loathe the term snowflake, which is just as well because last year most young people in the poll said that being called one affected their mental health. See, the idea, especially with the young, but not only, is to breed this population of weak, easily offended people who will look to authority to protect them from what they've been manipulated to fear. This is a technique the authority and establishment use all the time. Get people in fear of something and then we'll come forward with a solution which is not actually a solution it's just a batch in their own agenda to protect them from what we've manipulated them to fear in the first place the article goes on if tonight you watch Hugh Fernley Wittestall's TV documentary Britain's Fat Fight which confronts our national obesity crisis you will see members of Newcastle City Council which is discussing a citywide weight loss campaign tiptoeing in terror around the F word fat carries a lot of blame and negativity frets one woman another man dislikes the word diet lest it suggests eliminating food groups well, that is what a diet is. See, if you have a problem with words that talk about the problem you have, then how are you going to solve the problem? You can only solve a problem by addressing it. And, of course, this is a great way to use the excuse of you don't like certain words to run away from dealing with the problem. Because instead of looking at how the problem is caused and therefore how to remove the cause of the problem which is actually better than trying to solve it then you're messing around wondering about what words to use instead it's a great way of running away from having to deal with the problem 
the article goes on and she makes the point here also that instead of focusing on the UK's annual expenditure on the treatment of obesity and diabetes we're just focusing on the priority and their political correctness which is not making anyone upset and Carol Midgley goes on to say in this article I would guess that the number of people genuinely offended by that TFL whiteboard is about three yet there must be a time-wasting investigation the humorless are taken over the asylum no offence this is exactly the situation you see, people talk about political correctness has gone mad. Well, it depends how you see it, because if you think political correctness is about stopping discrimination of minorities and stopping discrimination of people, then it will appear to have gone mad, because it's beyond any rational sense. But when you realise that its goal is to destroy freedom of speech and stop exposure of elite agendas, as I've said before, political correctness is an elite agenda to stop exposure of elite agendas. Because when you look at the list of political correctness subjects that you can't criticise, you can't talk about, you're looking at elite agendas and that's why political correctness exists, to stop people talking about them. And the only way to stop those agendas happening is to address them. So it can appear to have gone mad or you can look at it from another angle and see that it's genius because it's actually achieving what it was always set out to do among those who will actually stand for it that is not that all of us will some will some will just tell people to fuck off and stop being so bloody stupid because that's the way that this nonsense is going to be treated in the way that it should be and freedom is going to be preserved because if we don't treat political correctness in that way then there will be no more freedom of speech and without freedom of speech you cannot defend any other freedom which is the idea and the sooner people realize that the more of a chance we have so that's it for this week that's the news that's the context in connections that's pay-per-view more to come next week until then goodbye